I'm going to read the first two verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The apostles write, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This chapter begins the body of the letter 2 Thessalonians. Up till now, we've had greeting and benediction and prayer, and there's been some good doctrine in there too, but it's all been in the, the context and the structure of a greeting. And he's going to focus again on eschatology. Eschatos in Greek means last. Ology means the study of. So eschatology means the study of last things. So when you hear eschatology, you need to think the end of the world. All right? Everybody just perked up. I like that. That was cool. And the first letter to the Thessalonians also spent some considerable time talking about eschatology. And chapter 2, most of it is about that subject. So I know it feels like we've been crawling through this book, but it is a short book. And we're going to continue to go slowly because we're going to spend the next three to four weeks breaking down these 12, maybe, maybe a little beyond that, but 12 verses. Because Paul, you know how he is. He just drops knowledge as he goes. <laughs> and we've got to stop and take the time to understand it and grasp every facet. And so today, we're just going to look at these first two verses, which give us the reason why he's writing these things in the first place. In most cases in the Bible, doctrine was not given just because. It was given in response to a crisis or to an attitude or to help people along. And that's the case here. So today we're going to look at that. We're going to review what we learned in 1 Thessalonians about the end of the world. That's so much more fun to say than eschatology, the end of the world. And we're going to make sure that we have all of the big blocks in place before we move on. And the next few weeks will give us plenty of interesting things to talk about. But also today is not just going to be doctrinal, although it will be. It's not just going to be informative, although it will be. I hope I'll make it simple and easy for you to understand. But what you want to take from this today is the reminder of what our proper attitude ought to be concerning the study of the last things. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy specifically warned them against hysteria and fear, which are timely words for us today, I think. That when it comes to the study of last things, seems that... <laughs> Healthy, mature, well-grounded Christians tend to begin to engage in hysteria and fear and are maybe otherwise grounded in what the scriptures say, but we begin to talk about last things and we start to engage in speculation and our attitude totally changes, which is not good. And I'm not accusing anybody in here of doing that. I just know that this is something that we all need to be aware of and to look to. And something I know that I have had trouble with in the past. So I think this will be a good lesson for us today. We're going to review what we talked about in the first book. We're going to look at the attitude. And hopefully that will set the stage for the next several weeks as we look at more of the details and more of the doctrine. We can keep that attitude in mind. So let's read some of this again. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now concerning. Those first two words, that is a classic Paul transition. 
You read through the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. It's a marker that he's changing the subject. Even though he's already talked about judgment in the chapter 1, he's moving on. All right, now, let's move on to the next thing. So we come out of the benediction, we come out of the prayer, and he says, now concerning, and he says concerning two things here. He writes about, number one, the coming of our Lord, and two, our being gathered together to him. And immediately we are faced with the question, are these two separate things, or are they one thing? Because that is where a doctrinal divide lands is, are we talking about two separate things here, or are we talking about one thing? And the grammar here lets us know that we're actually talking about two different things. Those who believe that the the rapture and the second coming are the same event, that they're coterminous, as we say. Uh, You might say if you're post-trib, is the slang that we use for that. That when it says the coming of our Lord and the gathering together to him, that this is an example of the Granville Sharp rule. Does anybody know what that is? Maybe you've heard it. The Granville Sharp is a grammar rule. I know how much everybody loves grammar, so we'll t- spend a lot of time talking about this. I'm just kidding. The Granville Sharp rule is a Greek rule that says when you have an article, like the word the, subject number one, the word and, and subject number two, it's talking about the same thing. So when you have our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's saying that Jesus is God and Savior. Not saying that we're talking about God and the Savior. It's a very theologically important rule. However, this is not an example of the Granville Sharp rule. And there's several reasons for that. The first one I'll point out is he's not referring to personal nouns. The Granville Sharp rule does not apply to impersonal things. So the coming and our being gathered together to him, the structure of this verse lays them out as two separate things. In fact, there's a very popular book that I had to read in seminary by a man named Daniel Wallace, where he breaks down the syntax of just about every verse in the Bible, and I'm not exaggerating. And he uses this as an example, as the example of when the Granville Sharp rule does not apply. So if you missed all that and you're not understanding it, let me just sum it up in one sentence. The grammar of this sentence makes very clear that we are talking about two separate things, not one thing. Now that does not necessarily solve the discussion because folks can then just say, well, he's talking about two different facets of the same thing. So you can see going to the Greek doesn't always solve your problems. <laughs> Sometimes it just makes new ones. But it's important to know that it is two things here, although they are, of course, related. And I'm just saying that at the beginning because I have full textual permission to discuss these things separately. Some of the books in the commentaries I read say, it says right there that he's lumping them up in together as one thing. So it's foolish to talk about them differently. Well, the the grammar actually permits that, and that's how Paul puts it, talking about two different things. So we're going to do that, talking about the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together. As I've said, the Thessalonian epistles are some of the most important books of the Bible related to eschatology, to end times. Right up there with the Olivet Discourse, which is what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, and of course the parallels and the other synoptics, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, Zechariah could be thrown in there, and First and Second Thessalonians. You got a whole section where he says, now, let's talk about the end of the world. That's pretty cool. He calls his attention, their attention, back to what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians. And we can see here they had some serious concerns. And we're going to, at the end, address what those concerns might have been and why he's saying this. But 
what I first want to do is, is take these two things and lay out what we have been teaching here and what we mean when we say these things. And that will give us the framework to move forward. I went into all of this in great detail a couple months ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and into chapter 5. So all those teachings are on the website. Go check them out. Listen to them again if you like. I'm just going to lay them out for you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending them because we've already done that. Okay? So, first thing. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? Well, this is what we call the second coming. The word for coming there is parousia. Maybe you've heard that or you've seen that somewhere before. The parousia, the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not exactly a technical term in the New Testament. There are some folks that every time they see the word parousia, ah, talking about the second coming. Well, no, it's used in various ways in the New Testament, especially James and 1 John seem to be referring to an imminent coming of the Lord, as in it can happen right away. So it's not, it's not technically referring to the second coming. It can also refer to the rapture when you see that word in other places, but here, it's pretty clear that's what he's talking about because he's going to refer to the coming later and then on that coming, he's going to kill the Antichrist with the breath out of his mouth. So stay tuned. That's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. The second coming, distinguished from being gathered. This is the most basic truth of Christian eschatology. Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen. Jesus is coming back. The second coming. He came once. He's coming again. And the Old Testament prophesied this. Zechariah chapter 14 talks about when the Messiah will come and the Jews will look upon him and they'll weep for him and they'll mourn for him like somebody mourns for an only son and he'll put his foot on the Mount of Olives and it'll crack and split open in two and that's the coming of the Messiah. The New Testament talks about this as well. Acts chapter 1 verse 11, the apostles were watching Jesus ascend into heaven the Lord sends two angels to kind of shoo them away. <laughs> the angels say, the Lord Jesus will return just as you saw him go. And they were standing on the Mount of Olives. So isn't that significant? And at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus is coming back. So I'm laying out here the big blocks of Christian eschatology. Trying to figure out how they relate to each other is a little more difficult, but I'm laying out the big blocks. Big block number one, Jesus is coming back to judge the world. Just about every Christian, for the most part, agrees with that. That Jesus is coming back, and we call that the second coming. Now, when he comes, this is when will be established the capital K kingdom on the earth. The apostles asked Jesus again in Acts chapter 1, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus went around proclaiming during his life, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that kingdom is very specific. They knew what that meant. We try to get real, you know, spiritual with what the kingdom is. When the Jews heard Jesus talking about the kingdom, they knew what that meant. That meant the son of David is going to sit on the throne, reestablish our borders, and that's when we're going to rule the world as the Lord promised. And Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 makes it clear that this will be a 1,000 year kingdom. And that's why we call that the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. It says that the dead in Christ came to life and reigned for 1,000 years, and that Satan was bound for 1,000 years. And at the end of that 1,000 years, Satan was turned loose, and there's another battle. But that's the kingdom. 
And so most of those Old Testament passages that talk about all things being made right and the, the water coming out of the temple to restore the earth, that's the capital K kingdom. Jesus will come back and the next thing is a 1,000 year kingdom that we usually call the millennium because that's what 1,000 years is. So big block number one, Jesus is coming back to judge the world. Big block number two, he's going to set up a kingdom that will last for 1,000 years. That's big block number two. Now, prior to that, so we were going forward, we're going to go backwards here. Prior to that, the Bible describes seven years of the worst years the world has ever known. And it very frequently describes it in terms of trial and tribulation. So we have given it that title, the capital T, tribulation, for seven years. Jesus talked about it in Mark 13, 19. He said, in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So for seven years, there will be tribulation. And you read through the book of Revelation and other places, Zechariah leans into this too, that after these horrible years, the time of trouble, the tribulation, whatever you want to call it, these horrible years that will last for seven years, that's when the second coming will come, and that's when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And we're going to be reading about that in the following weeks, that God is going to unleash evil on the earth. He's going to turn loose all the restraint of evil. So what we're living in now, this is God holding the leash. So imagine what it's going to be like when God lets the leash go. So we'll talk about that in the next few weeks. But we've got the three big blocks here. And in order, in chronological order, we have seven years of tribulation, number one, followed by number two, the second coming of Christ, and number three, the millennium. After that is what you call eternity. Second Peter chapter three talks about the world being destroyed, melting with a fervent heat, the sky being rolled up, and a new heaven and a new earth. So this is the end of the line for the world you're standing on right now. The tribulation, the second coming, and the millennium. If you hold to what is called a futurist position of biblical prophecy, meaning you believe that these things are still to come, there are some who believe that, no, Jesus has already returned and we're living in the millennium right now. To which I say, bummer, dude, if this is the millennium, then I, I feel like we're sort of missing out on what the scripture says. There are, then there are other ways of, of looking at that, that no, 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 it's not talking about any specific event. It's just symbolic of the church age. We don't believe that here. I think that's the Bible has prophecies that are given and that are then fulfilled. And I think that we can follow that pattern into the future. So if you hold a futurist position, which I would say is most folks, most evangelical Christians, those things are more or less undisputed. There will be a tribulation, there will be a second coming, and there will be a millennial kingdom. And we can quibble about the details, but those are the big blocks. And so far, we're standing on really, really solid ground. And we have lots of friends, and it's all good. That is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second issue, he says, our being gathered together to him. This is a little more controversial. And I don't mean controversial as in I'm set to pick a fight here. I just mean this is where there is more disagreement among godly faithful, going to live forever together in heaven Christians, then the last stuff. The gathering together. This is what Paul described in the last book. I think it's pretty clear because he's using this term that he described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We call this the rapture. Rapture comes from the Greek word harpazo, which means to seize or to snatch. 
I love it. My, my son, Micah, who I've been telling about the Bible, he's really taken hold of the idea of the rapture. And so he doesn't say when we get to heaven, he says, when God snatches us, are we going to, and then he'll ask questions about heaven. And I love that. He's like, when we get snatched, you know, when God snatches us up, that's the part that sticks in his brain. And it's good because that's what the word harpazo, being caught up, means. And the Latin word for that is raptura. And so we anglicize it and make it rapture. Let me read to you what Paul said about this gathering together in the last book so that we're up to speed. Because the Thessalonians would have remembered this. We need to remember it too. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. What does that mean? That means this is new. By a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, that's what he's talking about when he refers to the gathering together, the capital R rapture. This is an event when dead and living Christians will be caught up to be with Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 54 is another major passage. Paul describes it as instant glorification. That it's not going to be you have to die and then go to heaven and then await. He says, in that moment, we will all be changed, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. He says, because you, you can't inherit what God's going to give you with the body that you've got now. So, he says that uh, they are going to be, we are going to be glorified in that moment. So, this is big block number four. And this is in the Bible. This is described, and it, as I said here in this verse, it's talking about two different things. And the question is, when is this going to happen? I'm not talking about dates. I'm talking about order here. This is the big question. We've got our three big blocks that we're, I would say, certain on. And then we've got the rapture, which is another block that is in the Bible. And we scratch our heads and we say, now where does this go? When is this going to happen? Now, it's interesting. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul called it a word from the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, he calls it a mystery. So when Paul talks about things like that, it's similar to when he was describing the inclusion of the Gentiles, calling it a mystery. This is something that the rest of the Bible does not accommodate very well because God is now revealing it to Paul and to the apostles here. So for that reason, it gets tough. We, we've got so much in the Bible about the tribulation and the second coming and the kingdom, but we don't have a lot about the rapture, which is to be expected based on how Paul describes it. But this is a block number four that we have to understand, well, where is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Now, you've got two main groups that I'm going to address. There, there are infinite variations of, of this, but I'm just going to look at two. You've got post-tribulationism, which believes that the rapture is basically the same thing as the second coming. That Jesus Christ is returning to earth, and at the same time, the church is going to be raptured. So that they would be brought up into heaven and then immediately brought right back down. That's post-tribulationism, or what's called pre-tribulationism. This is not very difficult to understand. This is us, that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation begins. And that's where we would put that block in. This number four block goes before the tribulation. The other big prominent position is to put it after that, after those terrible, terrible years that will ravage the whole world that Jesus talked about. And there are others that 
like I say, they'll, they'll put it in the middle, they'll put it somewhere towards the end, but not at the end, infinite variations, but those are the two main things. And I have already discussed this at length about why we put the rapture there. And we're going to discuss it some more in the next couple weeks, especially two weeks from now when we talk about the restrainer that I was just talking about. But I'm going to summarize why. I'm going to give what I see as the five best explanations of why we put this here. So you can write them down and go back and listen to the other teachings if you want to get the details on it. And there's a plethora of great books that I can recommend to you. Don't go Googling this stuff now because there's, there's too much weird stuff that you'll find. So number one, why do we believe the rapture happens before the seven years of tribulation? Number one, because we are not destined for the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, You are not appointed to wrath. And you read through the book of Revelation, it becomes very clear that those seven years are not just bad times. It's God pouring out his wrath on the world. Revelation chapter 6, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb because the day of his wrath has come and who can stand against it? We are not destined to wrath. The wrath of God for the Christian was poured out on Jesus at the cross. That There is no more wrath for us. And we all agree on that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is a soteriological, a salvationology argument. That if all the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus for you and me, how is it then just for God to punish those who he has declared righteous with the unrighteous on the world? And we see this typologically in Lot, who was snatched by the angels out of the city of Sodom before God destroyed it. Noah, who was protected, those, those kinds of things. We're not destined for the wrath of God. I think that's the big one. If post-trib has... A big question they've got to answer, it's that one. And they are those that say, well, we'll be sovereignly protected during that time. But that's not what the word says, though. It says that those who believe in Jesus during that time are going to get walloped. And they say, well, don't you believe that Christians are going to suffer persecution? Of course we do. I've stood here many, many times and told you, don't think you're, all your problems are going to go away because you're following Jesus. But this is not persecution. This is the wrath of God. God himself pouring out wrath on his church. That's number one. Number two, this is another one that I don't have time to explain. Daniel's 70 weeks maintain the distinction of Israel. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, the Lord gives Daniel a timeline of how many years are left for the nation of Israel. And it's 70 weeks of years, 70 sevens of years. 483 years were fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. The next thing that was supposed to happen was the establishment of the kingdom. But what happened? Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we've had 483. How many years are left? Seven years. And that's the tribulation where God will return his attention to the nation of Israel. And this is very important for us to understand the distinction between the nation and the church, which is made up of all nations. I think Romans 9, 10, and 11 makes that distinction very clear. And for me to make that any more easy to understand, it would take way too long. So we'll move on to number three. The New Testament describes Christ's return as imminent. Why do we believe the rapture comes first? Because passages like James 5, 8 say, establish your heart for the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Paul and all these other guys talk about the coming of Jesus like it could happen at any moment. Now, if you believe that the coming of Christ can be at any moment, but it first must be preceded by seven years of very def definite signs and fulfilled prophecy, I don't see how you can call that imminent. 
And to be fair, what will be said is, well, we believe that the beginning of those seven years is imminent. But that's not what it says. It says the coming of the Lord. I'm not pretending it's easy to understand. I'm just saying there are things in there that make us scratch our head and say, well, if that's that and that's that, then how do we understand it? If Christ's return is imminent, I don't see how you can hold to something other than a pre-trib rapture. Number four, the church is absent in Revelation. And this is a controversial one. Read through it again. The only time the Bible is talking about the church in the book of Revelation is chapters 2 and 3. After that, we read about saints. We read about those who come out of the great tribulation. We don't read about the church. And then in Revelation 19, it says, The bride has made herself ready. And then Jesus returns with the saints of heaven. So I think that's significant. And number five, I'm not going to get into this at all. The doctrine of the restrainer which we're going to look at in two weeks, I think the only proper way to understand that passage is to understand that the Holy Spirit's work through the church is what is restraining the Antichrist. So we'll talk about that in great detail in two weeks, so I'm not going to touch it anymore. So those five things. We're not destined for wrath. Daniel 70 weeks. Imminent return of Christ. The church is absent in Revelation. And the restrainer. Now, I will be accommodating here. The post-trib understanding of the rapture is cleaner. I'm just going to say that. It's cleaner. Because it's all one thing, and all the passages that talk about Christ's coming refer to the same thing. That's, I'll just admit that. But, I believe that the pre-trib understanding of the rapture accommodates more scripture. I think there are more motifs and doctrines that I have no problem addressing by taking this one more complicated understanding of the text. And to be clear, as I established at the beginning, the Bible and the text absolutely leaves room for it. There is no slam dunk place that makes it 1,000% clear they're going to happen at the same time. So we are accommodated by the text. And also, the first advent of Christ was in stages, was it not? All the Jews, they believed that Jesus was going to come, the Messiah was going to come, and it was all going to happen at once. And Jesus is like, y'all don't get it. First, I'm making payment for sin. Then I'm returning. So what does that mean? It means that prophecy is more complicated than we give it credit sometimes. And we have scriptural precedent for believing that prophecies can be fulfilled in stages. And the number three big rapture passage, I already looked at 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus said this to his apostles at the upper room. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Where? In my Father's house. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I don't understand how, under the post-tribulational scheme, you believe that Christ is going to come and take you to where Jesus was going, which was heaven. It's very clear in that whole passage. talking about, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And then he says, but I'm going to come and I'm going to take you back to myself, to my father's house, preparing mansions is the old word, but rooms or dwelling places. So when exactly is that promise going to be fulfilled? I believe that it's at the gathering together that Paul talks about. That that is when Jesus is going to take us to be with him in his father's house. And that, that's what Paul means when he says, and we will ever be with the Lord. Isn't that cool? So this catches us up. We've got four big blocks. There are three of them, the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennium, that are pretty clear where they fit. You've got block number four, which is the rapture, 
which there is debate about where it fits. We believe it's the first thing. Let me say, this is not a salvation issue. Can you be saved and believe in a different view of the rapture? Yes. I think we all know that, but it's just good to remember sometimes. Can you have fellowship with another Christian who believes differently? Yes, you can. Can you have some spirited discussions with Christians who disagree? Yes, you can. But here's the thing. Regardless of how you understand that, you have the same ethical mandates that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Christians are always wanting to accuse one another of, you hold this position because secretly this is what you want. Pre-trib is always accused, you believe that because you secretly don't think you deserve to suffer for Jesus. Well, that's not the case. We're perfectly prepared to suffer for Jesus. We've been talking about it a lot. We talked about it two weeks. There are other folks that, well, you just don't want to, you don't want the Bible to be complicated. You don't want to take the time to understand it. Well, that's not fair. Let's just leave all that aside, right? Let's look at what the text says, and we'll let that be our final judge. And if we someday see a man set up an idol of himself in the temple in Jerusalem and declare himself to be God, we will know that we were wrong, and we will suit up for the rest of the tribulation. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's the next major thing that would happen. So... Anyway, there we go. That's where we stand on this. And these are the things that Paul is addressing them. So now we can move forward. We've got the framework in mind, and you know where we're coming from when I refer to these big blocks. I hope I made that as simple as possible for you all to understand. Because there's so much scripture that has to be brought together. And I was just summarizing, but I hope that makes it a little easier for you. So, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He says, we ask you, brothers. The word in Greek is erotao. It means to urge or beseech or beg even. This is not just, uh, if you don't mind, please don't freak out. He says, I'm begging you. Please don't be easily distressed which history has shown was an appropriate concern for Paul to have when it comes to the study of last things, huh? That people are easily distressed. But the word begs us not to be easily distressed. Why were they distressed? Because they were concerned that the day of the Lord has come. That is why Paul Silas and Timothy wrote this letter. This is the main thing, that they were concerned that the day of the Lord has come. Now, let's do some more basic Bible prophecy understanding. What is the day of the Lord? With a capital D. This is a major biblical motif, a major biblical theme that you see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. I can give you a little definition. It is any day of God's direct, dramatic intervention in history usually for judgment, usually to rescue his people, and that it's all building up to the final day of the Lord. So you read through the Old Testament, there were many little d days of the Lord. The destruction of Samaria was the day of the Lord. The destruction of Edom, the destruction of Jerusalem, the rescue of God's people from Egypt was the day of the Lord. But as you read these things, they are all building up to the final capital D day of the Lord. And I believe that that's what Paul is referring to here. Let me give you an Old Testament description of the day of the Lord. And maybe you can see why the Thessalonians were distressed to think that that's where they were. Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. 
The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord Anytime you see in the Bible the phrase, in that day, the day of the Lord is judgment for good or evil, depending. If you are one of God's righteous ones, the day of the Lord will be a day of rescue and vindication. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? But if you're not one of the Lord's, then it will be a day of destruction for you. So you can see why the Thessalonians were distressed if they thought they were in the day of the Lord. Because he says it's a day of wrath and darkness and gloom and I'm going to pour out their blood like dust. And they thought that they were in that. Now, let's understand something. You might think, okay, well, why would you think that? Isn't it obvious? Wouldn't it be obvious, the gloom and the, the destruction and the judgment of that day? And if the day ended and you went on to another day, wouldn't you be thinking, okay, well, I guess that wasn't the day? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. The day of the Lord, as we understand it, theologically, is not just a single 24-hour day. Okay? It's not like Genesis 1 where it's, you know, morning and evening was the first day. Very clearly a 24-hour period. But the day of the Lord could be, I guess, understood as the days of the Lord or the time of the Lord. We'll say, well, you know, back in my day, you don't have a date on the calendar, right? You're talking about in my time. That's what the day of the Lord is. It is a figurative way to describe the days of God's intervention. So that whole hat full of eschatology that we went through, the tribulation, the second coming, that's the day of the Lord, even though it's going to take years to accomplish. What it seems is that these Thessalonians believed that that seven-year final countdown had begun, and they panicked. That they were in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has been brought near. They didn't believe, oh no, it's judgment day. They believed all that destruction and trouble has started. I believe this is another indication that the Thessalonians were expecting the rapture to come first. Because they were distressed because they thought they had missed it somehow. That was their concern in the first epistle, remember? They were concerned that if you died you wouldn't be able to be gathered together with the Lord. And Paul's like, y'all, y'all, we're all going to be brought together on that day. We're all going to be gathered together. And here it seems that they thought they themselves had somehow been bypassed. And I think that that is, I think that's the best way to understand this. Because if, if I believed that there were seven years until the Lord is coming back and that those days had already begun, I mean, I would be concerned, but I also would be kind of rubbing my hands together. You know what I mean? Like, all right. Jesus is coming back, and we know when he's coming back now, so let's get it done. But the apostles write to tell them, not yet. <laughs> and this passage, starting in verse 3 all the way down to verse 12, is going to explain why not. And Paul's going to say, you can't think that the day of the Lord has already happened because this hasn't happened and this hasn't happened. None of that has happened yet, you guys. 
Because it seems somebody had been fear-mongering in their church. Somebody came in claiming to have inside knowledge about the end of the world and was freaking out these baby Christians. Remember, they had only been saved for a couple months at the most. And somebody was coming in and stirring up trouble, which is why he says, We urge you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Maybe they would say, so what do you all know about the, the end of the world? Well, Paul said that the Lord is going to return for us and then all this destruction is going to happen. Oh, no, that's already begun, don't you know? Really, it has? Oh, yes, oh, yes. And somebody was stirring up trouble. One thing that we do know for sure, like if there's one thing that is categorically undisputed about the end of the world, we do not know when these things are going to happen. We do not know when. Apparently they had forgotten what Paul had said in his last letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he said, Now there's no point for me to write to you about the times and seasons. Because you know it's going to be like a thief in the night. Paul tells him at the rapture, oh, it's so great. And he says, but I can't tell you when because no one knows when. Be like a thief in the night. Jesus said this. So if you ever hear anybody who wants to tell you that they know when, Jesus said in Mark 13, 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. An angel appeared to me and told me when it was going to be. The angels don't even know. Nor the son, but only the father. There's a Trinitarian mystery going on here. That Jesus is like, I don't even know when I'm coming back, y'all. That is a divine father secret. So if somebody says, well, really what you've got to do is you've got to break down the code of Scripture. And then once you break the code, then you know when it's coming. There's no code about no one knows. Even Jesus said when, he, when he's giving the description in the Olivet Discourse, he says, yeah, there's going to be this, there's going to be that. He goes, but see that you're not alarmed. See that you are not alarmed. He knew we would get jumpy, didn't he? <laughs> he knew that we were going to get nervous and that we would be searching for things to plug into our headlines and all the rest of it. The next thing on the list for you and for me, prophetically, what's the next prophetic sign to be fulfilled? The it's the rapture. That's the next thing. Jesus Christ is going to say, come up here and the trumpet will sound. That's the next thing. And the weird thing is, and we got to own this, most of the crazy people that are talking about crazy prophecy stuff, they're pre-trib people. And that breaks my heart. And it makes no sense. Because we don't believe in any intervening signs. We believe that it is imminent and it can happen at any moment. So we can look at something and say, oh, cool. But, well, maybe, maybe not. There's nothing that needs to happen before Jesus returns. I took a whole week to talk about that. We might see things that might make us raise our eyebrows a little bit, but that's the extent of it. We raise our eyebrows. Oh, in the 40s, Israel became a nation again. That's significant. And then people say, now, therefore, that we know that, we can track the date. No, you don't. No. <laughs> well, the Lord needed this to happen. No, he didn't. Jesus Christ could have come back before he brought Israel into the land and could have done it after the rapture. Well, there needs to be a temple built. No, the Lord can work out that after those things. The return of Jesus Christ is imminent. And the only other major sign the Bible gives us, by the way, is the rise of the Antichrist, which we're going to talk about next week. And, of course, the joke is every American president since John Adams has been called the Antichrist. We always think we know who it is. George Washington got a pass because everybody liked him, but it didn't take long. 
And the fact that Paul continues to comfort these Christians here, he says, guys, calm down, chill out. Don't be quickly shaken. That is another thing that pushes me towards pre-trib. I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it for time's sake, but anytime we're talking about the return of the Lord, the, the apostles are saying, be comforted, rejoice, be hopeful. Never once are we given a mandate to buckle down because here it comes, y'all. And that might be an argument from silence, but I do think it's significant. So we don't know when these things are coming. There is nobody who has inside knowledge. You'd think that was obvious enough, but we still have regular, like clockwork freakouts in the church about the return of the Lord, don't we? We've got to be honest about that. There's always a new book. <laughs> There's always a new thing. There's always a new trend. Oh, we know when it is. But I want us to look at these three things here that Paul says that should not alarm us and should not cause us to be unsettled. Number one, he says a spirit. What is that? That is a prophetic utterance. In 1 Thessalonians, he told them, do not despise prophecies. So we should permit those things in the church. He also said, though, to test all things. Yeah? But don't believe anybody that comes, I've had a vision from the Lord. Maybe, maybe not. So don't let anybody who says, well, I've heard from the Lord, unsettle you. Number two, a spoken word. Let's call that a sermon. <laughs> Let's call that a really persuasive sermon or speech that somebody gives that they know when the end is coming. And number three, a letter seeming to be from us. So maybe people were forging letters in Paul's name. At the end of this book, we're going to see Paul's going to make a little mark. He says, this is how you know it's from me, because I always write it just like this. And so, well, we don't have any of those. Oh, yes, we do. How many people think they've discovered the new ancient code to understand the Bible? And, ah, we've discovered the Gnostic Gospels. This will help us determine when Jesus will come back. Or here's a new book. Here's a new thing. There's always some letter written to disturb us. Paul says, don't believe the spirits that are going to tell you they know. Don't believe the spoken words. I don't believe the written words. But I get people recommending to me, have you seen that end times prophecy that was given? It's on YouTube. You got to go check it out. That's got me really nervous. Well, didn't Paul say exactly that? Not to be disturbed by that? Oh, have you seen this? Pre I know. I know what the Bible says, but he's real convincing. Doesn't matter if he's convincing. Well, have you read this book? This book really lays it out in a really cool way. I'm not disturbed by that either. I get sermons about dates from people. I read about ancient codes to crack the Bible. I, like, I, I hope we, I get to write books for the church. I never want to use the word unlocking in any of the titles because it's been abused so badly. As if the Bible is something is locked that you've got to need somebody with their special key to come and unlock it. The Bible is open for you, Christian. It's not locked. What are we missing here? Every few years. We've got somebody traipsing in who's going to have a number one New York Times bestseller about when the end shall come. And then a few years later, nobody buys them books anymore because it didn't happen. And it seems like every new crisis somehow figures into the prophetic picture. Well, how does this election figure into that? Are you going to elect the Antichrist here? Because that's a significant thing. Or what about that coronavirus? I don't know. I'm just saying. This is how people, it never comes out and says it definitively. I'm not saying it's the end, but, you know, it, it could be. People have been saying that, y'all, since the beginning. How do the headlines figure into the prophetic picture? Can I say this? Almost every time, they don't. That's not what Jesus told us to do, is to search the, the headlines and line it up with Scripture. He said, search my word and don't be alarmed and be ready to go at any moment. 
If tomorrow they built the temple in Jerusalem, that should not make you one bit more or less ready for the return of Jesus. If Israel gets driven out of their land by Iran and Saudi Arabia tomorrow, that should not shake your faith either. God brought them back once, he can bring them back again. Charles Spurgeon was preaching back in the 1800s. He's like, we, we need to expect that Israel will be brought back into the land. And he did not have that reality right in front of him. It's not about the signs, Christian. It's about the word, which tells us to be ready at any moment. And the thing is, when it comes to biblical prophecy, there are so many moving pieces to then try and take what happened this week and this month and say, ah, this fits in this thousands-year-old thing that we've been reading. I don't think that that is that's truth, you guys. And people that want to give updates like every five minutes on the prophetic picture. Paul says, don't let people like that come in and freak you out. What is worse is that these things make us more carnal, not more spiritual. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20, you will know a false teacher by their fruit. And you will know it's a bad teacher by bad fruit. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, I love this phrase. He says, avoid irreverent babble. Talk, 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 talk. Irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. So Paul's referring to these two teachers that were going around teaching weird end time stuff and said, they're gangrene in the church. And he tells Timothy, preach the word. Don't, don't preach this weird stuff. Obsession with these things. Can I just go ahead and put it out there? Obsession with the end times is most of the time an excuse for Christians to be political rather than a spiritual practice. I want an excuse to be very politically engaged because I'm trying to prevent the Antichrist from rising. As if you could. Give me a break. And now we look, we, we look into the news and we look into these things and we try and line them up with scripture and then, aha, see, therefore these people are evil and that's why you've got to do this and you've got to vote like that and you've got to come to this rally. And what is that? Is that the fruit that Jesus told us to have? Shouldn't these things instead make us come to the prayer meetings more and be weeping on our knees more and be knocking on more doors and leading more people to Jesus? If the fruit of these things is we become more and more invested in this world system, we've missed it, haven't we? You've got to come up for air sometimes, Christian. It's fun to look at the maybes. And say, ah, it could be this. I like reading those things too, as long as it's reverent and respectful and knows its place. But focus on the certainties, not the uncertainties. What I know for certain is that no one knows. And unless there's an antichrist, as Paul's going to say, it's not yet. Well, there is an Antichrist. He lives in Tibet somewhere. It's always something like that, isn't there? Unless there's an Antichrist standing in God's temple commanding everybody to worship him, then it's not yet. And we believe the next step is the rapture anyway. doesn't mean we're unconcerned. It just means we're looking for an imminent return of Christ, and we're not looking for the next block to fall into place. As far as Jesus is concerned, they've all fallen into place. Paul expected it was going to come in his day, and you should expect it's going to come in your day too. I hope you do not find yourself being easily alarmed or unsettled. And hey, listen, if you're one of those people that is easily alarmed and unsettled by these things, this passage is for you. If you find that my study of the end times makes me much more nervous and angry and alarmed, you're doing it wrong. 
Come back to the text and what the Bible says. Because that's not the right attitude to have, being fearful and being angry and being carnal. But let's not end it on that. Let's talk about what is the right attitude to have. What is the right attitude? Peter puts it this way. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter said, if we believe all this stuff, how should that affect our lives? And that's the question we're going to ask now. And I'm going to give seven right attitudes quickly that you ought to be cultivating in your life and that your study of the end should produce in you. And if they're not, you need to take some time and pray. Number one, holiness. Holiness is to be the fruit of knowing that Jesus is coming back. Living every day like Jesus might walk in the door. You know how that feels. You're not going to do a bunch of sinful, awful things if you know your boss might open that door and walk right in. Same thing with Jesus. If Jesus is about to come back, you should be walking in holiness and righteousness. Number two, patience. The Bible talks about patience. James talks about patiently enduring because you know that the end is coming. So just endure, be patient, be level-headed, and trust that the Lord is more wise than you. And that he's got his date, and it's the right one. Number three, diligence. Peter talks about working to hasten the day. How is that possible? There's a verse in Romans where Paul says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then the Lord will turn his attention to Israel and the end will come. So get out there and get some people saved, and it might come faster. Diligence, work. It's very unfortunate that a lot of people who are very concerned about the end times spend more time on their computers than they do serving in the church or out there talking to people that need salvation. And I've been there, so I'm not throwing shade. I'm just saying this is the way it goes. Number four, expectation. Keeping your heart ready. That the more you study these things, the more it should cause you just to have that, that Christmas is coming tomorrow feeling where you're just smiling. The Bible talks about those who love the appearing of the Lord. That's how I want to be remembered. Somebody that loved his appearing, that just couldn't wait. Expectation, not laziness. Eh, who knows? Could come anytime, so why bother? Number five, compassion. Those people that you're walking around every day and, and are living in the house next to you and that you see on TV saying awful things about Christians, those people are going to be caught unprepared on that day. And for them, it's not going to be a day of salvation. It's going to be a day of destruction. Shouldn't that move your heart? To say, oh my goodness, they need to hear this. Compassion and love for those people. Number six, loyalty. This place is not your home. You are a sojourner. You are a pilgrim. You don't live here. The Bible talks about you living in a tent. Tents are temporary. You're going to go to heaven someday. So you are not so focused on this world. Now, do we seek the well-being of the city to where we've been exiled? Yes, but always with the view in mind that this is not the end. And that if the way things are going and the way that I'm living my life is preparing me for this short span of years that I have now and not the eternity that's coming later, the priorities are out of whack. And number seven, here's the big one. It all summed up in this hope. There's no room for despair. I don't understand why when we focus on the, on the end and we study biblical prophecy, most of the time we get scared. And, and afraid and angry and full of rage and, oh, we've got to do something. Instead of hope, it says Jesus is coming back. 
Even with all this mess, Jesus is coming back. You know that someday it's going to be over, that you're going to spend forever with Christ. However you understand these things, you have the hope of forever with Jesus. These are the attitudes that the study of the end ought to have on us. Holiness, patience, diligence, expectation, compassion, loyalty, and hope. But fear and anger are not from the Lord, Christian. James 3.15 says that that kind of wisdom is unspiritual and demonic. James didn't mince words very much, did he? He says the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable, and he goes on. But the wisdom from above is is fleshly, and it's carnal, and it really feeds your flesh. You want to get mad at those folks anyway, but now you've got a biblical reason to get mad. You want to get involved in this thing, and now you feel like you've got prophetic permission to go get involved in that. That's carnal. Instead, we are to have hope and joy and, and a little sense of time is running out, you know? These people, their time is running out, and who knows when it's going to come. And Paul told them, don't be quickly alarmed. Don't be unsettled by folks coming in and saying they've got some special inside knowledge about when the end is coming. First of all, no one knows. Second of all, Jesus is coming, and he's going to make it all right. So let your heart be filled with hope and not fear. So to summarize at the end, we believe that Jesus is coming back in judgment. That will be preceded by seven years of tribulation, and his kingdom will last for a thousand years until the world is remade. The fourth block is the mysterious rapture. When the Lord will gather all Christians to himself, we believe that will be before the tribulation. And the main lesson today is that you should not let yourself get tossed around by sensationalists on the internet about these things. There's plenty of them out there. Folks that want to get everybody worked up. And as we study these things, we're going to talk about the Antichrist next week. We're going to talk about the restrainer and the rapture the following week. And then the following week after that, we're going to talk about the mass deception that the devil is going to send on the whole world. I think we'll do it in that order. We'll see. But our attitude, we know what it should be. We know what the fruit should be. If you plant a seed and you think it's corn and up comes an apple tree, you maybe planted the wrong seed. So you need to evaluate the fruit that is growing in your life and see if you're planting the right seeds. There's too much work to do. And there's too many who might still believe for us to get bogged down over what Paul called irreverent babble. So let's get to work with hope in our hearts, with your eyes on the sky, because you know the end is not yet, but it might be today.